0: Almost every year of this century, our country has been engaged in a war, sometimes more than one war at a time. So soldiers from our country have been daily on the front lines, engaged in battle, risking their own lives. But honestly, for most of us as Americans, we give little thought, little awareness to this war that is over there. Certainly families and friends of those soldiers are are keenly aware, daily aware of this great danger. But Most others of us are not. Perhaps you're flying and you're in an airport and you see some, some soldiers in uniform and you're reminded again of this war that's happening. But aside from that, most of us live day to day unaware of any battle anywhere else. This is true also on the spiritual level. In the world today, the Bible tells us there's a very real spiritual battle happening. It is invisible, that is true, but real. Two kingdoms are colliding, but most of us are unaware. We give very little thought to this war, even though this war is a great danger to all of us, and it impacts every person that we see. And today in our passage, we're going to see a glimpse of this ongoing battle. And as we look at it, we'll see its relevance to us, to the way that we live today, the way that we live this week, and also, very importantly, see that there's actually no neutrality in this war. You can't be, no one can be neutral in this great battle. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 12, Today will be in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 22, and you can find that in the Bibles near you on page 817, page 817. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, just so you can see the text in front of you today, so you can see where I'm drawing these thoughts from. Uh, if you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, so we're in chapter 12, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and I'll mention those throughout, so we're going to start with Verse 22. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one as a gift. And so at the back of the room, there's a table, there's a sign that says free Bibles, there's a stack of them there. Please, following the service, just grab one of those Bibles, take it with you this morning. So we're continuing our series in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew 12, beginning in verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom Stand. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, Or make the tree bad, and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last day of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation." This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. Jesus came to deliver and restore. So trust in him and embrace life with him at the center. And we'll look at our text in four parts, and we'll spend more of our time on the first. We'll see these four parts. First, the deliverance. Second, the fruit. Third, the sign. And fourth, the danger. So first, the deliverance, verses 22 to 32. We see in verse 22 that a man was brought to Jesus, and this man was oppressed by an evil spirit, by a demon. And as a result, the man was unable to see and unable to speak. And Jesus heals the man, delivering him of the demon, and the man was now able to see and speak again. The man was restored and freed from that which he was captive to. And we see in verse 23 that the people who saw this were amazed. So they were saying, could this be the son of David? We're saying something like, this couldn't be the son of David, or could it? The son of David was this figure in the history of God's people, for for David was the great king of Israel. And God had promised David that one in his line would reign on his throne forever. This was the the promised one, the, the hope for Messiah. So they're saying is, could this be the one? A mixture of amazement, question, and doubt. Might this actually be the promised son of David? We see a different response though, verse twenty-four, of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and look what they say. They say it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Beelzebul, a name here being used for Satan. So notice that they were not denying that Jesus was casting out demons but they were attributing his power to do so to Satan. And so Jesus responds to the accusation. First, he points out how their argument is is just basically illogical. Look at verse 25. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He said, look, you're, you're saying it's Satan fighting against Satan. That doesn't even make sense. There's no way he was going to fight against himself. If so, his kingdom will collapse. Jesus also points out that some of the Pharisees had also cast out demons. So he says, well, if some of your own group cast out demons, are you saying that they do it by the power of Beelzebul? Obviously, that's not what they say. And if not, why are you saying that Jesus is doing it by the power of Beelzebul? Then Jesus says, verse 28, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come. This has been Jesus' message throughout his earthly ministry. The kingdom of God has come near and has come near because the king has come near. Jesus, the king, has come. And where he comes, the power of the Spirit is at work, the kingdom is near. And he goes on to say that clearly Satan is powerful. In order for someone to overcome Satan and deliver someone from him, that person would have to be stronger than Satan. So use the image of of someone trying to plunder a house. So let's say there's this person that has this this sort of fortress of a house. And in this house, they have people that they're keeping as captives, slaves that they're keeping there. Well, how could you deliver them? You'd have to be stronger than the strong man whose house it is. You have to be stronger than the strong man who has these captives. So Jesus says, if Satan is strong, and he is, he's stronger than people, and if I'm able to come and deliver people, then I must be stronger than Satan, the strong man. The king is stronger than this evil one who's been exerting his influence in the world. Jesus came to overthrow the kingdom of darkness, to free people from captivity. And we see here that the Bible is making the argument that there are unseen, invisible realities in the world. The Bible, across its pages, makes the argument there is a very real, invisible battle. There are spiritual beings that, though we don't see them, they are very real. Of course, in greater Boston, many, perhaps you, would would scoff at the notion of angels and demons, of Satan, of an invisible reality. And yet I wonder, when we see the pervasive evil in our world. So much that we can attribute to the sinfulness of people, but but don't we at times even wonder, is there something even more at work in the world? Could it be there are invisible hands at work? Jesus is making clear there are very real spiritual forces that are powerful, and they're working out evil, destructive plans in this world. Jesus makes clear Although there is a real and powerful enemy, Jesus is infinitely greater. For Jesus is a king unlike any other. He is no distant king who sent some soldiers to fight in this war. No, he's the king who came to fight himself. He came near to these rebels, near to those who are in ongoing sin, near to those who were opposed to him. He came near to rescue, to redeem, to deliver us from captivity and to make us his own part of his kingdom, children of God. Now, how did Jesus accomplish this? Through what is truly a shocking reversal, where Jesus, who is stronger, allows Satan and those in league with him to bind Jesus, to plunder Jesus, and ultimately to crucify Jesus. The glorious, powerful king put to death on a cross. He'd be placed In a tomb, and it would look like for a couple of days, like Jesus, the king, had lost the battle. It would look like Satan had won. But then the great cosmic reversal, Jesus was raised on the third day, securing victory through his own death and resurrection. Jesus had come not to wage war against the occupying Romans, as so many of the Jews had hoped. His mission was much greater than just the Romans but he came to make war on Satan, sin, and death. And through his death and resurrection, he has conquered all of those. So no longer do we have to live in fear of Satan, no longer captive to our sin, no longer even fearing death. For a day is coming when we will no longer face this suffering and death, but live eternally with God. Jesus came displaying glimpses of his kingdom in these deliverances and healings. For today, by his power, he still delivers, transforms, heals, redeems. And friends, because Jesus is the king and because he has come, his existence, his presence requires a response from every person. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus says, if if I'm not with him, I'm against him. If you aren't trusting in Jesus as Savior and King, then you are against him personally. Now we're likely tempted to think, if, if you're not a Christian, so many in our city would say, look, I'm not against Jesus. I don't believe in him, perhaps but I'm not against him, I'm, I'm neutral. When it comes to Jesus, I, I'm, I'm like Switzerland, right? I'm just, I'm a neutral place. But notice that Jesus says, that's not possible. There is no neutral ground. And it's because we, we were born into a, a sinful, rebellious family, descendants of Adam and Eve, and all of us gladly, quickly join in that rebellion. So all of us from the earliest of days are, are walking in rebellion against God. So we're fighting against God. We may not think of it in those categories, but, but that's what we're doing when we're rebelling against God. So we're not on neutral ground. We're against Jesus. So we all have to consider this question. You know, What is true of you in your life? Are you with Jesus? Have you trusted in him? or are you against him? And we want you to see that Jesus doesn't allow us this middle ground choice that perhaps you might want to grab hold of. But you might wonder, what about if I have been against Jesus? Is there any hope? If I've continued this rebellion, what do I do? Look down at verse 31. Jesus says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy Will be forgiven, people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So Jesus makes really substantial statements here in verse 31 and 32. And many of us focus almost exclusively on the mention of this sin that can't be forgiven, that won't be forgiven. And that's important, but but we miss the good news, the beautiful news he says just before that. We must miss that. We'll talk in a minute about this unforgivable. Notice Jesus says that except for this one sin. Any and every sin, any and every blasphemy can be forgiven. So friends, through Jesus' death on the cross, he has paid for those sins and provided forgiveness for all who will turn to him. So we should see what this means. Friend, forgiveness is available for us. Forgiveness is available for you and for me. Now, we do want to look for a moment at what Jesus calls this sin that won't be forgiven. What's called in our text, blasphemy against the Spirit, or speaking against the Spirit. Now, This existence of this has, has often haunted Christians who've, who've seen this, and particularly if you, if you have a tender conscience, just worried often. Have I committed this sin? Could I commit this sin? So we want to try to understand what does Jesus mean? Now first, as always, we want to understand a text in its context. So Jesus gives these words to these religious leaders, trained religious leaders, the Pharisees, who are denying Jesus' claim to be the king and attributing to Jesus, the son of God, they're saying that he's in league with Satan, that he's empowered by Satan. So this unforgivable sin is not a sin that a person might accidentally commit by saying certain words. It is not an impulsive sin. It's not a a slip of the tongue. So as a a Christian, you don't don't have to worry that somehow in this life that you're really angry and you say something, that, that somehow you're going to say something that, oh, now I've committed the unforgivable sin. That's not what's going on here. It's not even that you've said terrible things about Jesus before becoming a Christian. For we see in the apostle Paul, who he was adamantly opposed to Jesus. Condemning Christians, hauling Christians off to jail. He calls himself a blasphemer. So before he was a Christian, Paul blasphemed Jesus, but God, by his grace, saved a blasphemer like Paul. Jesus saved a blasphemer like Paul. So it's not not blasphemy before you're a Christian. We we see even in Jesus' own family, like his siblings show up and they want to bring Jesus home. They're like, look, you're, you're just out of your mind. And so some of those siblings become disciples of Jesus. It's also not that you've denied Jesus before following him or after following him. We see the apostle Peter. He denies Jesus three times, even knowing him. And yet Peter is transformed by grace, writes a portion of the inspired scriptures that we have. So we understand those, those are not unforgivable sins. God forgives freely those. So what is this sin that won't be forgiven? One author describes it this way. This sin involves willful unbelief, persistent rebellion, and final denial. Another says it this way. It is a specific, active, and final choice to declare the person and work of Jesus as being demonic in origin. It's a settled state of heart saying, Jesus is of Satan. I refuse him. I reject him fully. And the reality is those who have committed this unforgivable sin will not be concerned about it. Their conscience will be settled in it. So if today or some any day you find yourself concerned, have I committed the sin that can't be forgiven? That is a sure sign you haven't committed it because the Spirit is at work within you. You're feeling conviction perhaps, or just the question is evidence you have not committed this sin. So while we want to be aware of this grave sin, most of all friends in this text, we wanna hear the good news that forgiveness is available for every other sin. Every other sin you could commit on the earth, every other blasphemy that you could commit can be forgiven in Christ. So friend, therefore run to Christ, with your sins don't hide in them so often when we are found in sin we are overcome with shame sense of condemnation we want to run from jesus and sometimes from the church but friend let this good news draw you to christ come to christ and find forgiveness If you are a Christian, keep coming back with repentance to know the, the refreshment that's found in the full forgiveness that's found in Christ. And see that this enemy, Satan, what he wants to do is to cause you to be paralyzed under shame and condemnation. Somehow he wants to convince you to believe that sin is too far. He wants to convince you that there's no place for you in Jesus' church because of the pervasive nature of your sin, the sin you committed last night or last year. Friend, That's how Satan wants to destroy, but that's not true. Hear the words of Jesus. Forgiveness is available in and through Christ. So we see the deliverance, the longest by far of the four. Second, we see the fruit, verses 33 to 37. Now, these opponents of Jesus have been saying untrue, evil things about Jesus. So Jesus then turns to the image of a tree and its fruit to address their hearts and our hearts. And he says, a tree is either good and it's healthy or it's bad and it's diseased. And sometimes that's not obvious. It can be misleading. So he says, here's the way you know if a tree is healthy or not. He says, look at the fruit. Examine the fruit to find out the health of the church. So let's say this fall, you want to do a, a true sort of Boston, New England thing. And you so you go to an apple orchard. So you go to the apple orchard. It's a beautiful Saturday morning. You have some, some cider donuts as you should. And then you, you pay for a bag of apples that you're going to pick. You pay an exorbitant amount of money for a small bag that you're going to pick and put these treasures of apples in there but you do it because that's what we do in Boston. So so you have your bag, you're sort of walking out among the orchard, and you see this tree, and friends, you come to a tree, and you look, and this apple is diseased. This apple is diseased. This one is rotten. But if you see a tree full of diseased apples, do not say, surely I can find one good one. Don't do that. Go find another tree. That tree is not healthy if all the apples are diseased. So then you walk until you find a tree that has good apples on it. That's a sign both the apples are good and the tree is healthy. That's the picture Jesus is painting of how our lives play out. The same is true of people. The fruit in a person's life points to the true spiritual health of who we are, of our heart. here Jesus focuses on a particular fruit, and that is the fruit of our words. The Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to have been saying evil, false things about Jesus. We've seen that all across the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Again and again, saying untrue things about Jesus, questioning, accusing him. And so Jesus is saying they are evil, and that's displayed by their evil words. Their evil words are evidence that they don't have the new heart that Jesus came to bring. Jesus then gives us this broader principle. It's so important for all of us. Look down at verse 34. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The words that we say reveal our hearts The words that you and I say come from our hearts. Our our mouths do not just create these words. They come from within. From within and then this fruit of our words come out. And if a person's heart is good, typically good words will come out. If our heart is bad, typically evil words will come out. Jesus teaches us again and again that none of us are good on our own. That all of us need a new heart. And Jesus came to give us a new heart. And once we receive this gift of salvation, we have these new hearts, and then evidence of this new heart in us is the increasing change of our words, of fruit, not perfect fruit, but increasingly good fruit. Not that our words will always be perfection, but of course it's possible for us to fake good words, isn't it? So say, you know, I'm, I'm going to church on Sunday. Potentially, You could fake certain words here today. I'm not going to say certain words I said yesterday or that I'm going to say tomorrow, but I'm going to use church lingo. And so I'm going to, I could fit in, look like there's good fruit today. Or you could have a job interview tomorrow and you could use perfect language. Are you thinking about what you're going to say, what you're not going to say? And for a few moments, present good fruit when actually our hearts are far from God. But the truest test of our words is what are my words like under pressure? What are my words like when I'm stressed, when I'm angry? And what are my words like when I think it's a private conversation? It's only you and one other, a close friend. Well, it's only you and a roommate or you and a spouse. The text is only between you and three other people. What are the words like then? And we see repeatedly in our society and in public when often a politician or a celebrity thinks they're saying something in private, but it turns out the mic was still on or it turns out they were being recorded and they say something that's horrible and the public is aghast. So then the person says, I'm sorry that those words came out. That's not what I really believe. As if to say those words just came from nowhere. Really what they mean to say is, I'm sorry you heard what I really believe. I wish you had heard me say what I don't really believe, but what you wanted to hear, but, but I'm sorry, you heard the true thoughts of my heart. Just a glimpse for a moment of what they really believe. Friends, the same is true for us. In private conversations, or sometimes, strangely, we say this way on social media, as if Those aren't public, but then somehow we we say things on social media we would never say to a person face-to-face, and we'll say it about them or to others about them. It reveals our hearts. And Jesus cautions us that we will face accountability for our words. Our words matter. Now, the most true and important words we can say is, first, I'm not good, and I need a Savior. Those are the best words any of us could ever say. And so we place our faith in Christ, we repent and believe in Christ, and then we're given a new heart as a gift from Christ. And then as we seek to mature as a Christian, empowered by the Spirit, we seek to increasingly live differently. So so fewer destructive words, more truthful words, thinking differently about the words we say to others, changing the way that we interact on social media. So we want to leave behind sinful words but not stop there, also now use these words for good. I mean, it's a good thing to move beyond destructive words, but but we should also see the power of words. We can use words to to build up, to communicate love, to encourage, to, to serve. We can use words to share the gospel. So friend, I wonder, if you're really honest, what is the abundance of your heart currently producing in your words those who know you best, those who you communicate seemingly privately, what are they hearing from you? Do you have a new heart? And if not, that's the starting place. Turn to Christ. And if you do have a new heart, what does it look like to move towards truthfulness and away from gossip, away from slander? Instead of tearing others down, Instead of excusing and justifying our words, building others up. And as we saw earlier in James, this is a hard fight to change our words. This is one of many places we'll likely be helped to invite another Christian into this. So you might say to a brother or sister in the church to say, hey, I, I need to make progress in my words. So I'm asking you, would you ask me next week how that's going? You might have been very specific. In the workplace, I'm tempted towards this. Would you ask me about that next week? Friends, the good news is this is also a way for you as a Christian to display the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we're scattered this week. So in the workplace, what would it look like for you not to join in tearing down the boss when everyone else does? What would it look like to not join the workplace gossip when it's so tasty, attractive. Students, as you start the new term, what does it look like to to not join in tearing down the instructor when everyone else so easily takes the shot? One of the ways you can display the fruit of a changed life is by how you use your words in those places. So we see the fruit. Third, then we see the sign in verses 38 to 42. Verse 38, we see the scribes and the Pharisees, they say to Jesus, teacher, We wish to see a sign from you. Now, they've already seen many signs and miracles that Jesus has done, and now they're basically asking for a miracle on demand. Do a miracle now, right here, right now, they say. Give us something convincing to authenticate who you are. But Jesus speaks very frankly to them as he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. And he says that they'll be given a sign, but only this one sign, he says, and that is the sign of Jonah. So here Jesus points back to the Old Testament prophet Jonah. If you want to read the story, you can go to the, the, the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. It's really it's a wonderful uh, brief book, so I would committed it to you this week. But God had called Jonah, a prophet, to go to Nineveh and to preach there and call the people to repent. But Jonah was actually concerned that the people would repent. He, he knew that God was gracious. He said, if I preach to them, this horrible people will repent. So he ran the other way. He got on a ship, and while on a ship, a great storm came from God. Eventually Jonah was thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish. He was inside the belly of the fish for three days. He was spit out on the shore. Finally, he decides, I should do what God told me to do. So he went and preached, and he preached to Nineveh, and he did exactly what he, they did exactly what Jonah was worried. They repented. They heard the word of God, and they turned back. So Jesus says, that's the sign. In a similar way, Jesus is a sign. Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days. Jesus would be crucified, buried, and raised on the third day. And the presence and preaching of Jonah was a sign calling them to repent. The presence and preaching of Jesus was a sign calling people to repent. And notice what Jesus says, verse 41. He says, at the future judgment, the men of Nineveh will actually stand up and condemn you because you didn't believe. When basically, they'll be saying, look, we believed and it was only Jonah. Jesus himself came to you and you didn't believe. What were you looking for? The people of Nineveh will say on the last day. Jesus goes further. He mentions the queen of the south in verse 42. She's the queen of Sheba that we find her story in 1 Kings chapter 10, where she heard of the great wisdom of the king of Israel, Solomon. Wisdom unlike any other, given from God. So she traveled a long distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus says, she too will stand up and condemn. Just say, why didn't you believe Jesus? I listened to Solomon. So Jesus says, someone greater than Jonah has come. Someone greater than Solomon has come, and that is Jesus. So, friends, we should see here that we're accountable to what we have heard. Today, in the world, we are blessed to have the entire Bible, the whole story. So we can read the Old Testament pointing ahead to Jesus. We can read of Jesus' life and ministry, his death, his resurrection. So now it's much more clear to us And we're accountable to how we respond to Jesus and how we respond to the resurrection of Jesus. This was a stunning reality. Someone raised from the dead. It was startling then as well. Even though just as here, Jesus predicted it to his disciples, they were not anticipating it because they too know people don't rise from the dead. But Jesus did. And that became the message of the church in the book of Acts. As the gospel goes forward, that's their message. Christ has been raised. He died and was raised. Friends, that's the center of Christianity. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we we as Christians acknowledge resurrection is a hard concept to wrap our minds around. But we'd also say, it's actually the only answer, though, that makes sense of the evidence we think through about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the only thing that really explains what happened then and since then is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. So all of us face the question, what will we do with Jesus? What will we do with the resurrection of Jesus? If this is new to you, we'd invite you. We hope you feel welcome here over the weeks and months ahead to explore who is Jesus could it be they really did rise from the dead? If you'd like to explore it, we have a number of books we'd come into you that you could read. We'd be happy to meet with you and talk with you about that as well. We should also notice God's love for outsiders. The Ninevites were outsiders. The Queen of the South was an outsider. But God in his grace made his news known to them. Friends, that's the heart of our God. He loves the most unlikely outsiders. Now, that's good news to us if we're Christians because we were outsiders. And that continues to be good news here. So, friend, if you're not a Christian, you might think you're an outsider. You're beyond the reach of God's grace. But there's no one beyond that reach. So while you're here today, you can turn to Christ by faith and receive this free gift of salvation. And then for those of us who are Christians, as we're scattered to our city, to our workplace, to the campus, we want to be mindful, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. The seemingly most hardened coworker, the seemingly most skeptical fellow student, the family member who's always been opposed to you because you follow Jesus, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And so we continue to go and tell and pray with with hope, No one is beyond the reach. God loves to save the most unlikely of people. So we see the sign. And then fourth last, we see the danger in verses 43 to 45. Our passage ends with what's honestly a pretty interesting teaching from Jesus. And he illustrates a point by describing a situation where a demon, an unclean spirit, has gone out of a person. So he goes out of the person. After some time, though, he decides to return to the person, which is functionally his house. And when he goes back to the house, he finds the house has been cleaned. It's been dusted. It's cleaner than it's ever been. And so he goes and brings more evil spirits with him. And this person is worse off than before. Now, initially, it sounds like Jesus is making a point about demonic possession. But then he says one more, look at verse 45. After that, then he says, so also will it be with this evil generation. So now it becomes clear that Jesus isn't trying to make a point about a particular individual, but that many in this current generation, the Jews of Jesus' day, led by the Pharisees, are like this situation. Meaning internally, they've tried to clean themselves up. The the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees were very moral, apparently holy, and they had rules on top of rules that they kept. So outwardly, they looked holy. But they are like this empty house, clean, but empty. Outwardly religious, even outwardly holy, but their hearts were far from God. They needed a new heart. So it's a very real danger in that day and for us today as well. And that is to, to clean ourselves up, embracing a, a sort of moralism, but thinking that's sufficient. Or that it saves. That's certainly good and wise for us to want to, to flee from sin and fight sin. But friends, we need even more than that. Simple moralistic solutions are not enough. They might work for a time. We might even make progress against a a destructive habit, but but we need transformation that's even deeper. So the message of Christianity is not simply that the, the, the house of our life is a mess and we need to clean it up. It is that we are spiritually dead and we need new life. Our heart is dead. We need a new heart and Jesus alone brings that. Now, many other world religions point to this need of Self-reformation. So they give a list of rules or, or steps that you take to, to clean yourself up, to improve yourself. Or some say that the way to improvement is simply to, to most of all express yourself fully. My friends, Jesus says our, our, our need is greater, deeper. We need life. We need a new heart. Jesus came to transform, giving life, and then to empower a different way of living. Jesus did not come just to make a few changes to who we are. He didn't come to just kind of straighten up some things that we hadn't quite gotten to. He came to give us a new heart that reshapes everything about us. So friends, let's trust in Jesus, our great delivering King. Let's embrace the life that he has for us, the truly fruitful life that flows from the new heart Jesus provides.